Well, this morning we continue our journey through the Bible, what we were calling every word all year. And I have to say, I've heard a number of, of good comments from different ones in our church about how much they are enjoying this, how much of a blessing that it's been. I think one of the reasons for this is because there's kind of a, a community feel to it, that so many of us are doing it together, and, and different ones are engaging in Sunday school classes and small groups. Some of these are just kind of informal groups that got together and, and discussing the reading, so it's been a real blessing. And one of the things that is occurring is that we are being exposed to the Bible, and we are being exposed to parts of the Bible that we typically don't read. And at times, this has been challenging, hasn't it? But also what we are finding is that not only are we being exposed to the Word of God, but we are also being exposed to who God is. We are being exposed to God's character. And to be honest, we're having to wrestle a little bit with this. Because it's easy to kind of want to keep God in a, in a box, kind of a, a neat, straightforward understanding of God. But as we are seeing as we go through the Bible is that God is much more complex than what we may have thought. And also that there is tension to how God has revealed himself. Because we can tend to drift and just think about God's love and his mercy and his compassion, but at times we can fail to recognize that God is also holy and just and that sin must be punished. And one of my main prayers for you that I've been praying consistently is that we as a church know God, that we really know God that we have a deepening understanding of who God is. And in our passage this morning, we're going to be looking at Exodus chapters 32 to 34. And we're going to be looking at this story. It's kind of this famous story that's known as the, the golden calf story. And what we are going to see is that the Israelites, they get themselves into this really awful situation. And this situation gets very intense but in the midst of the people's great sin, we see this great revelation from God of who God is, of God's character, and we find this tension between God's justice and God's mercy, God's grace. Now, Exodus chapters 32 to 34, it's a pretty long story, it's a pretty long narrative, uh, so we don't have time to look at each verse, so uh, what we're going to do is split it up into three scenes, okay, three scenes. And the first scene that we're going to look at, scene one, is the rebellion of the people. Okay, the rebellion of the people. Look with me at Exodus chapter 32, verse 1 to 6. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we do not know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. 
Now, as this story begins, let me give a little bit of a, a brief summary of where we're at in Exodus. As we looked at last week, the Israelites had been in slavery for 400 years, but the Lord heard their cry, and he goes to this man, Moses, and he says, Moses, you're going to lead my people out. And so Moses, through the mighty acts of the Lord, uh, goes to Pharaoh, and one after another, all these different plagues happen, and it's a direct assault on the false gods of Egypt. And eventually, after the 10th plague, Pharaoh has enough, and he lets the people go out. But we didn't touch on this last week. Not only did God send the 10 plagues, but after Pharaoh let the people go, Pharaoh changed his mind, and he sent his army after the people. And as the people are going out, they have the, the Red Sea on one side and the, the army on the other. They are trapped right in the middle. But the Lord again delivers them. He parts the Red Sea. They go through on the dry ground. And then as the army gets close, it, it closes in over them and sweeps them away. And the people of Israel are saved once again. And as we get to chapter 32, we find that the Israelites, they have journeyed to Mount Sinai. And while the people have been here at Mount Sinai, uh, the Lord gives them the Ten Commandments. The people commit themselves to the Lord. They say, the Lord is our God, and we will be obedient to what he commands. And so things are going good. The, the people are at a real high point in their relationship with God. But as Moses had been on this mountain for about 40 days, they are unsure what happened to him. And because of this uh, being unsure of this impatience that they have, they ask Aaron to make them an idol to serve. And as part of their worship, it says at the end of verse 6 that they engaged in revelry. Your translation may say they rose up to play. But to clarify, they weren't tossing the football around, okay? They were engaged in all sorts of immoral behavior. They were most likely uh, drunk. There was most likely a lot of sexual activity going on as they worshipped this golden calf. So what are some of the reasons why the people disobey? What, what causes this disobedience? And the first thing, it starts with the people's impatience. They didn't trust God's timing. You know, when it comes to uh, timing, I was given some helpful advice a number of years ago by an, an older man when it, it came to marriage. And he was telling me, you know, a lot of conflicts that happen in marriage is due to timing whether it's when you're going to spend your money or intimacy. Maybe you're going on a trip and it's like, honey, we were supposed to leave at 8 o'clock. It is now 11 o'clock. This is probably some of the biggest fights I've been in with my, my wife when we leave on trips. I want you to think back to some of the arguments that maybe you've had with your spouse. And my guess is a lot of those have centered around timing. And that's been helpful advice, but it also applies not just to marriage. It applies to any relationship. It can apply to our friends and our, our co-workers, but it also applies to our relationship with the Lord. You know, we can maybe argue or get impatient with our, our spouse or our co-workers because of timing, but don't we also argue and get impatient with the Lord given his timing in our lives? Have you ever heard this statement before, I trust God, it's just his timing I struggle with? You ever heard that? Maybe you've said that. And I can be sympathetic to that. I can relate. But here's the thing. If we are constantly impatient with God, this actually reveals a lack of trust. And so when we get impatient with God's timing, we are not trusting him. And because we get impatient, 
We can give up so quickly when we're in the midst of a difficult situation that he wants to help us through. Or when we get impatient, we can act impulsively when we need to stay patient. But also, not only do we see the impatience of the people, but we also see the cultural baggage and the idolatry of the Israelites, what they're still dealing with. Because even though they had been freed from their bondage in in Egypt, uh, the culture of Egypt is still pulling at them. It's still wanting to bring them back. And this is why they create this this idol, this this calf. Now, when I say calf, I think most of us kind of think of this uh, newborn calf that's stumbling around very weak. Uh, But a better way to think about this is the golden calf that they made is a young bull. Because one of the Egyptian gods looked like a bull, and the name of this god was Apis, okay, A-P-I-S. And this god symbolized fertility and power and strength. And so one of the reasons that they did this is because it reminded them of the Lord. The Lord, when they are at Mount Sinai, there's all sorts of things going on. There's, there's earthquakes, there's lightning, there's darkness. It's a very intense scene at times. But also remember the plagues, the Lord had brought them out with mighty acts, So that's why they fashioned this calf. But even though God had just given them the Ten Commandments and said, do not make any carved images, the people still had this cultural baggage. They were still being influenced by their time in Egypt. So we have to ask ourselves, as we apply this passage to ourselves, in what areas is the culture, our culture, influencing you against God's Word? Every day our culture is influencing us and shaping us. And this doesn't mean that everything in our culture is bad. That's that's not the case. But we still need to be aware of how the culture is shaping us when it comes to social media, when it comes to our political views, when it comes to finding our identity. And this is why it is so important to engage in God's Word, to use God's Word as a mirror to reveal the areas where the culture is pulling us back when the Lord has commanded something different of us. And so when it comes to our priorities, when it comes to how we use our money, our views of marriage and identity, what does God say and what is the culture saying? But also we have to ask ourselves, what idols are in our culture? You know, family, relationships, doing what, whatever it takes to have comfort and no stress, It could be sex or money. And what makes idolatry so tricky and deceiving is that often the idols in our lives are good things. It's family, it's career, it's friends, again, all good things. And the reason that they become idols is not because the Lord doesn't want us to do them, it's because we put all of our affection there and it rises above the affection that we should have for the Lord. And what I find so interesting when it comes to to idolatry is that even though we are not necessarily tempted in the same way that the Israelites were to to worship this golden calf, what we see from the people is is that this golden calf, this idol, provided the Israelites with a sense of safety. They could see it. They could touch it. It provided security in their lives. And we can create idols, whether it's family or careers or money or relationships, whatever it may be, And we use those as security in our lives. It's a backup plan if God fails to deliver. And when we grow impatient, 
with God. We look to these things to bring us satisfaction and fulfillment when God appears to be absent in our lives, when God's timing is different than our own. All right, so that's scene one, all right? The rebellion of the people. Let's now move to scene two. This is the request of Moses. Look with me at Exodus 32, 7 to 10. Exodus 32, 7 to 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen this people, the Lord said to Moses. They are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn hot against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. So given the people's sin, uh, the Lord is extremely angry. and He's about to bring judgment on the people. And did you notice in verse 7 that the Lord doesn't say, my people, he says when he's talking to Moses, your people. Now, this is pretty shocking given what we've seen throughout the book of Exodus because time and time again, the Lord says, my people. I've heard the cry of my people. I'm going to bring my people out. But yet here the Lord says, Moses, they are your people. But the Lord is not just being dismissive. It's not like, you know, sometimes uh, maybe with a, a child of yours, you're talking to your spouse and you so, you know, they do something really dumb and you're like, that child of yours, Right? Don't blame this on my side of the family. This is your side of the family. But that's not what the Lord is doing. The reason that God refers to the Israelites in this way is because they have not only disobeyed God, but they have actually rejected God. And it's worse than that because of the intimacy of the relationship that God has with the Israelites. Because repeatedly in the Old Testament, the way that God relates to his people, the, the relationship that he has He calls them his husband, that God is the husband. They are his wife. So it is like, in a similar way, that God is is at the day of his wedding, that Moses is on the mountain. He's getting this covenant, this marriage covenant, if you will, and down below the people are cheating on him. And we would be absolutely shocked if that happened with somebody who was supposed to get married, and on the day of the wedding they were committing adultery. And this is what the people are doing. But even in the midst of this rejection where the people commit spiritual adultery against the Lord, God extends an invitation of grace to Moses. Because God explains to Moses what the people have done. He he tells them. He also tells them what he's planning to do. But the invite is found in verse 10. Where the Lord says to Moses, now leave me alone that my anger may burn hot against the people. And you may say, where's the invitation in that? But God says to Moses, if you leave me alone, and that is the invite. Because Moses has been the mediator between God and the people. Moses, time after time, has been the go-between, the one to intercede between God and the people. And so what God is inviting Moses to do is to continue to intercede for the people. That if Moses will not leave them alone, if he will not leave God alone and continues to intercede, God will relent from this judgment. And this is what Moses does. 
Isn't it amazing the spiritual growth that we see from Moses? He was so reluctant in Exodus chapter 3 to lead this people out, but here he is pleading with the Lord, interceding for the people. And in this story in Exodus chapters 32 to 34, Moses, he actually intercedes for the people four times. We don't have time to look at each in detail, but let me summarize the request that Moses makes. First of all, we find that Moses, he asked the Lord not to consume the people for God's own glory. Moses doesn't want God to lose any respect with the Egyptians, with the surrounding nations, if he would in fact destroy this people because he doesn't want God's glory, this this respect to go down, to be injured in any way. Isn't that so interesting that, that Moses pleads for God's glory? Second, Moses reminds God of his covenant that he made hundreds of years before with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But did you notice that he says, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Jacob's name was changed to Israel, signifying the covenant with this people. And that's what Moses is pointing to. So Moses is telling the Lord, remember your commitment, remember your promises, be steadfast in your love for this people. And then third, Moses asked that the Lord's presence goes with the people on their journey. Because what happens after the the first time that Moses intercedes and and prays to the Lord, the Lord says, okay, I will relent. But he comes back to Moses and said, as you guys are going to the promised land, I will not go with you. I will send my angel, but my presence will not go. And this is not good enough for Moses. And he tells the Lord, if your presence doesn't go with us, do not send us on this journey. And this is such a good word for us today when it comes to our own individual lives, the lives of our family, the life of our church, that we can do all this planning and preparation. But if we don't have the Lord's presence, it means nothing. And then fourthly, Moses asked that he be able to see the Lord's goodness. And we'll touch on this here in a little bit. But before we move to God's response to Moses' intercession for the people, we have to ask ourselves again, we have to apply this story to our own lives and ask, are we interceding for others? Are we praying for others? Are we being like Moses and interceding for people that we know in our community, in our families, that are facing judgment? Because over and over again in the Bible, you cannot escape it, that one day there will be a day of judgment where we will be judged for our deeds. We have to ask, do we really believe in God's judgment? Do we really believe in a place called hell where those that do not put their faith in Christ will spend eternity? This is a sobering thought. At times it can be hard to think about but we have to believe it because it's in God's Word. And so knowing that one day there will be a judgment, are we praying for our family, our friends? Are we praying for those in our community? Are we praying that God's mercy would open hearts to the gospel? Are we praying for those that we know that have drifted away from the Lord, that the Lord would come to them and bring them back? If we are to see real change in the lives of our family and in our friends and in our community, we must be interceding for others. That because of God's judgment, this should drive us to prayer. 
Now lastly, let us move to scene three. The response of God. The response of God. And again, given our time, we don't have uh, you know, enough time to go in detail with everything that the Lord uh, says. So let me give a, a brief summary. And then I want us to look at chapter 34, verses 6 to 7 in a little more detail. First, when it comes to Moses' request to see God's goodness, the Lord tells Moses, you cannot see me face to face because if you do, you will die. But yet the Lord in his mercy, he, he puts Moses on the cleft of this rock and then the Lord passes by and Moses, he gets to see the afterglow, if you will. Second, the Lord says that he will go with the people, that his presence will be with them as they go on the journey. Third, we see that God reestablishes the covenant. So what had taken place when the people were, were acting in all this immorality is when Moses came down and actually sought for himself, he became very angry and he broke the two stone tablets that had the Ten Commandments and he threw them down, one in his anger, but it was also symbolic that they had broken the covenant and these stones will be broken. But again, the Lord in his mercy, he creates two new stones for the people signifying that the covenant has been reestablished. And then lastly, God reveals his character. He reveals who he is. You know, last week when we talked about the Exodus, we said it was the, the most uh, important, the most central story, because Old Testament author, one after another, continues to point back to it. And if the Exodus story is the central story for the Old Testament, this passage right here is probably the most important in the Old Testament. So if you have Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, let's read it together and then we'll go back through some of it. And he, the Lord, passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. So God reveals himself as the Lord. And if you notice on the screen and in your translation, it's all in capitals. And when you see that, that the Lord is in all in caps, there is a lot of meaning behind that. This is the, the personal name of the Lord, Yahweh, his covenant name. But it also means God's salvation name. And did you notice how God says, the Lord, the Lord? So anytime you see this uh, repeated, this is for emphasis. We see this with Jesus in the New Testament when he would be teaching. He would say, truly, truly, I say to you. He's saying, pay attention. We also see Paul at the time he was known as Saul when he was going to persecute the Christians in Acts. And Jesus comes to him on the Damascus road, and he says, Saul, Saul, he's getting his attention, and this needs to get our attention. And the Lord says he is compassionate and slow to anger, abounding in love, all these wonderful attributes. And I would say if you ever struggle to pray, and we all do at times, pray the Bible, and this is a great passage to pray to the Lord and to think about. But the Lord also says that he cannot leave the guilty unpunished and that he punishes the children of the parents to the third and fourth generations, meaning that because of the sins of the parents, generation after generation could be affected. 
And we see this even today. Or maybe an abusive father or an absent mother. And all how this affects generation after generation with the family. But there is a tension in this passage. Because how can God not leave the guilty unpunished, but also be forgiving of wickedness? Or to state it another way, how can God be just and gracious? Because God just can't excuse sin, even if we want him to. Because yes, God is is gracious and loving and merciful, but he is also just. And just like an earthly judge, if they would just excuse uh, the sin or a crime of someone, we would be appalled by that. So God must punish sin because he is the great judge. And this tension from this passage would have actually been present to all the Old Testament saints. It wouldn't have been totally clear to them how God can be just and gracious. And this tension remained until the cross of Jesus Christ. Because at the cross, this is where God's justice and grace meet. Because at the cross, God punished our sin by placing it on Jesus. But we, the guilty, receive forgiveness. The Apostle Paul, he writes this in the New Testament letter of Romans. It's found in Romans 3.25. He says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So how do we respond to this this compassion, this forgiveness? How do we respond to not being judged for our sin? It's by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. By placing our trust, our reliance, not on ourselves, but on the Lord. I have to ask, isn't this just amazing? Paul would also write in Romans, he says, Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who can fathom it? And this comes after chapter after chapter in Romans of of Paul talking about the Lord's love because of the gospel. He can't fathom it. It's just amazing. So what should our response be? Well, we should respond in worship because Moses, after he receives this great revelation from the Lord, it says in Exodus 34, 8, that Moses bowed down to the ground and he worshiped. And so let us worship the one who has forgiven our sins, who has been compassionate to us, and who day after day is steadfast in his love for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for who you are. And Lord, we thank you for the cross. Lord, what human author would come up with this? Lord, we thank you that at the cross, your justice and mercy meet. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you willingly went to the cross for us so that we could be forgiven and placed in your family and spend eternity with you. 
Lord, we're also reminded of the judgment that this people felt, that they were going to experience. And so, Lord, I ask our church here in this room today that, Lord, we be sensitive to that. That, Lord, we be reminded of people in our family, our friends, our, our co-workers that do not know you. And, Lord, let us this week intercede for them. Lord, let us call them out by name in our prayer that, Lord, you would bring them to yourself and that they would experience your grace and mercy in their life. Lord, we thank you. We ask everything in Jesus' name.